0: Thank you Mika for that very generous introduction and uh, first let me say how honored and excited I am to be here today to share some of my ongoing research on Chinese birth tourism with you all. And of course I want to thank Belle and Mika and the rest of the organizers for this invitation and I find this seminar series on reproduction migrations in the Asia Pacific very exciting and so I look forward to your feedback and comments during the Q&As. Um, And also, I know there are some students in the room who have read um, the stuff and the reading list. So I also want to thank you for taking the time to engage with my research and all the materials that i provided. So, as you can see, the title of my talk today has changed from what was listed in the program and the blame is entirely on me. Uh, I decided on the exact scope of my talk too late for the program to be updated and so for that I apologize. And the new title is First Tourism Agencies in China and Taiwan, Operations and Marketing Strategies. So I decided on what to discuss today based in part on the composition of the audience and the program. I know there are students who've read um, the suggested readings and also their audiences, members from the university at large. So i will just strike a balance between um, not retreading too much ground uh, for those students, but also to provide sufficient context for the general audience. So, um, to the students, um, the operations part of my talk is drawn largely from the 2018 chapter new Chinese migrations, but I promise it'll be quick, uh, during that part. And I paired this with a thematic analysis on the marketing tropes that the agencies employ to attract prospective customers, which will form another chapter that's currently in progress. So to quickly summarize, uh, in the first part of my talk, I'll offer an introduction, And relevant contextual information uh, about Chinese birth tourism to the United States Which is my main research focus. So things like what is birth tourism? Where does it occur? Who practices it? How do they do it? And since some of my previous work are based in Southern California, much of the empirics that I present there come from that region In the second half, I shift to um, the Asia Pacific to look at um, how birth tourism agencies based there operate and recruit customers upstream in China and Taiwan. So besides a more descriptive focus on the industry structure, I also look closely at the advertising rhetoric used by these agencies to see how they sell the idea of birth tourism to prospective customers. So my main argument here is that unlike earlier iterations of birth tourism, where those with international experiences practice it informally, among kinship networks, contemporary cases of Chinese birth tourism are dominated by those who have not had such experiences or exposures, and for whom birth tourism is often their first substantial physical encounter with the United States. So therefore, agencies advertising rhetoric plays an outsized role in shaping their expectations and imaginations of US citizenship and its supposed benefits. So, I think this is the other side of the coin, so to speak, um, to much of the existing scholarship on first tourism, which tends to focus on personal motivations for, of engaging in this practice. However, the majority of research subjects covered in these studies are those who did not use an intermediary, like the first tourism agencies I described here. And that is not, what I found is that that is not representative of Chinese first tourism to Southern California. So in one study that looked at Turkish birth tourists to the U.S., the authors, the authors had suggested that, quote, parents see giving birth in the United States as a reasonable investment that yields tremendous benefits for the children to form the U.S. citizenship. In fact, the desire for U.S. citizenship has encouraged the emergence of a transnational market over the last decade, end quote. So I want to ask, especially in the Chinese case, exactly how did this emergence of a transnational market take place and what does that market look like? And moreover, did this emergence play a part in inducing or amplifying such desires for U.S. citizenship, perhaps where it did not exist before? To further connect my talk to the themes of the entire seminar series, um, Mika has raised two building blocks in thinking about reproduction migrations in Asia-Pacific and those are inequalities and values. So in discussions of these agencies' rhetoric um, and how they resonated differently with different clientele demographics will lend additional materials for us to think about how U.S. citizenship is valued in the Asia Pacific. Moreover, it hasn't suggested that reproduction migration often exacerbated existing inequalities. So based on my research, um, I offer a more moderate assessment of the relationship between commercialized Chinese birth tourism and inequalities at different scales. So what exactly is birth tourism and what makes Chinese birth tourism unique? A form of medical tourism, birth tourism or maternity tourism describes the practice where pregnant women travel abroad to receive care and to deliver their children. So the motivations behind birth tourism vary. Many opponents have pointed to the lure of foreign citizenship or legal status For the children as a significant pull factor therefore some have also dubbed this practice citizenship tourism so here you can see um, that here for instance uh, is one of the most publicized cases where a Taiwanese woman had to deliver her baby under duress on a flight from Taipei to Los Angeles in 2015 and what initially was a heartwarming story quickly took a slightly darker turn when it was discovered that the woman had lied To the airline about how far along her pregnancy was in order to board the plane which resulted in the airline taking legal action against her to try to recoup the cost of diverting the flight to Alaska. It was alleged that the woman initially refused care and repeatedly asked the flight attendants are we in the U.S. yet? There was also question as to whether the flight was already in U.S. airspace when the child was delivered which resulted in a few days of Taiwanese media being dominated by discussions of obscure clauses to U.S. citizenship laws, and ended up prompting <coughs> a U.S. spokesperson to release an official clarification. So as you can already tell from this story, there are at least two components to burst tourism here. First, if your primary motivation for engaging in it is for your baby to receive foreign citizenship, then you should make sure that the destination, wherever you're going to, allows such a method of citizenship transmission. And differences in citizenship laws internationally would also play a role in shaping the transnational geographies of birth tourism. Second, if there are many countries where such methods as, as possible, then deciding on the destination of birth tourism would involve some process of judging, among other potential factors, that compare the comparative values um, you place on different national citizens. So, this map here highlights the geography of birthright citizenship laws globally. And specifically, the countries highlighted in blue here offer unrestricted, use solely, birthright citizenship. And that is, birthright citizenship transmission based on place of birth. And to give a quick legal primer on citizenship laws, so generally <coughs> there are two types of legal mechanisms for citizenship transmission. The first is birthright citizenship, so, this is a citizenship acquisition at the time of birth. And the second is naturalization. So for the former, there are different criteria for determining birthright citizenship. And the two most common principles behind these criteria are eusanguine, which means based on bloodline or descent, and usobi, so based on place of birth. And so almost all countries in the world use some form of eusanguine for determining birthright citizenship, and others combine it with some form of too. So, uh, it's actually a common mistake when you hear people say that they want to abolish birthright right citizenship because that would mean that they want to abolish the ability for anyone to acquire citizenship at the time of birth. When you hear people say that, usually what they meant to say is they want to abolish you solely, birthright right citizenship specifically. Scholars such as Irene Blomrad have written about how these two principles of birthright right citizenship have competing tendencies. So sanguinity compared to ussoli is by far more restrictive. So the striking geography on the map here therefore makes quite a lot of sense. Um, you can see that 30 out of 35 countries in the Americas provide automatic solely quote, precisely because the history of modern nation building and independence there is a history of immigration, purposefully tied to independence from Europe, end quote. So in the U.S., for example, the was a shrine in the Constitution that sought to incorporate former slaves under the sentence into the polity after the end of the American Civil War. And one of the most uh, defining legal cases is the U.S. versus Wong King Ark, which centered on a Chinese immigrant who was born in the U.S., had returned to China, and then subsequently when he attempted to re-enter the U.S., his citizenship status was questioned. And the Supreme Court of the U.S. ruled that uh, you still birthright citizenship would apply to everyone, basically, regardless of status. So, I mean, this legal geography is not my main focus here, here except to say that, at least in the US, there's a particular history that fuels the politics around birth tourism and birthright citizenship more generally. And I think for today's purpose, it's sufficient to know that, based on this map and based on common understandings of international hierarchy, the US and Canada are the only two quote developed countries that offer unrestricted utility today, and therefore they're also two of the most prominent destinations of birth tourism globally. So besides Canada and the US, cases of birth tourism had occurred globally in places like Ireland, here in the United Kingdom, Hong Kong, Brazil, etc. Even though there's a great deal of variance on the origin and destination countries of birth tourism globally, for example, we've seen reports of Russians going to Florida, Ukrainians in Utah and the US, uh, Americans going to Brazil. Um, the Chinese are often represented as a key demographic in birth tourism. Along North America's Pacific Rim, where there's a large ethnic Chinese presence, birth tourism has steadily grown since at least the 1970s from informal practice among kinship networks to an organized industry that is largely without regulation. So, although small in number compared to immigrant populations at large, alleged instances of citizenship tourism in the US have, fig- have figured prominently in recent debates in both Canada and the US. And official statistics are difficult to come by, but from the American perspective, here are some estimates done by the Asian American and <coughs> Pacific Islander Data Project in 2015, which says that about 20,000 Chinese tourists estimated to engage in birth tourism every year. Um, as of 2018, however, others have estimated that this number could be as high as 80,000 a year Which still is a rather small number right in the grand scheme of things But what does this increase look like on the ground and what facilitated this increase? So as I mentioned before Southern California is where I first encountered these controversies related to commercialized Chinese first tourism. So in 2013, I happened to be in the area, I was staying in San Diego Valley and I was taking this bus that goes into downtown Los Angeles every, every day, takes about an hour, and it cuts across the largest ethnoverb is majority non-white uh, cities, uh, suburbs in the U.S., and um, on the bus, in your house, know, sometimes they have these TV strings, and on one of those, um, the local news was playing, and it happened to be, it happened to be covering uh, one of these protests against one of such facilities in an upscale residential neighborhood right so um, I had laid out some implications of these kind of protests to U.S. domestic politics in an article in 2017 Uh, but needless to say after all this media attention as it wasn't before then Chinese first tourism (coughs) business is certainly now very well known to local residents in Southern California and much of the local ire was directed towards these facilities that operated in apartment complexes and remodeled mansions in the neighborhoods. So in the midst of these activities, I had done some preliminary field work in the region and many I spoke to contended that, while burst tourism itself isn't really new per se, these large scale operations that disrupted neighborhood norms were new and they brought the practice out to the open. So it seemed logical that the next step for me, it was a look at how these, these new operations, right, what brought them about And it's attempting to answer that question that brought me to the Asia Pacific Where many of these agencies behind the commercialization of Chinese first tourism are based I was there primarily in 2015 and 2016 but some of the materials I present here today were collected continuously both before and since then While I was in the region, I split my time between Taipei and Hong Kong with periodic visits to Guangzhou and the choice of locations was primarily based on convenience I secured a part-time research assistantship in a university in Hong Kong to fund field work and I also knew, based on prior research, that there are clusters of agencies nearby that I could identify ahead of time including a supposed National Trade Association in China for birth tourism agencies But at the end, I was unable to verify its physical existence. So when I say I focus on these agencies uh, for my investigation, that involves a number of activities. For those with physical locations, I visited and spoke to, or attempted to speak to, employees, although some of the listed agency addresses turned out to be fake. I attended information sessions and recruitment meetings hosted by these agencies. And I spoke to other attendees at these events, since they were prospective customers, and I kept in touch with some of them after. Besides conversations and observations, I also collected advertising materials produced by these agencies, both physical ones and those sent or displayed online on websites and various social media channels. So why study these agencies? Well, as I've mentioned, these agencies have acted as intermediaries. To market and facilitate 1st tourism to the masses, and this was something only previously done informally through kinship networks. So these agencies provide expertise of identifying suitable destinations, arranging tourist visas after women pregnancies, coaching border-crossing etiquettes, and providing or arranging maternity hotels at their destinations. Some even provide further services after return, their return to home country. So, examining beer operations allows me to argue that while birth tourism as an informal practice has a longer history than these recent, highly visible incidents that we see in the news, what makes the current situation different is the degree of commercialization. <coughs> and beyond what I already wrote about, today I want to extend this theme of commercialization and ask. How do these agencies sell the idea of Earth Tourism to prospective customers in Taiwan and in China? And this offers one specific cut, or an entry point, if you will, to address some of the more macro-driving forces of reproduction migrations in and from the Asia-Pacific, as the Mika had raised while convening this seminar series. How so, exactly? Um, so first, I think for birth Tourism Agency to be successful, its operators, these ethnic entrepreneurs, if you will, have developed ways to first identify whether there is a market for its products, and if so, how to hook potential customers, right? So this necessarily involves a reading of the macro and more structural conditions that drive such desires in order for them to develop corresponding advertising products. And the second part sort of is that, judging by the growth of first tourism in places like Southern California, I think these advertisements we can say are generally successful. Right, so these appeals were affected, they resonated with prospective customers, and certainly a lot of them are staying at these facilities arranged by these agencies. So the match between these two, or potential mismatch in some cases, means that we can ask for these agencies' prospective customers who came from different circumstances, which advertising themes appeal the most, and what do they tell us about the pressures of reproduction in their particular demographic situations? So Vanessa Fong had suggested that legal citizenship in a developed country can provide an instant set of developed world capabilities and freedoms. And based on this, I'm interested in what are some of these specific capabilities and freedoms that birth tourism agencies focus on when they advertise and recruit prospective customers, and what do they tell us about structural conditions in the origin country? And here I'm less interested in whether these capabilities and freedoms are real or how certain we are that U.S. citizenships would actually realize them, right? Rather, I'm trying to read how agencies advertise, which, how agencies advertise, and which ones pers- prospective customers, in my observation, responded to most. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying that the drive for Chinese first tourism is entirely manufactured by these agencies. As I just mentioned, it's kind of always a dialectic. But I think it's informative to look at these rhetoric and their resonances, especially since some customers have no previous direct exposure to the U.S. And so to put it more simply, these hooks that advertising, this, these hooks that agencies use, they have to be sensible to local context to be effective, right? They must target their intended audiences. So I have given a, I have given a short presentation on to, um, birth tourism to a department of East Asian Studies in Germany, and during the Q&A, a German graduate student had asked me, well, I kind of understand everything you just said, but I still just don't understand, I don't get why anyone would go to that length for a foreign passport or for a second passport. And immediately, you could see, like, all the international students were shaking their heads. And before I got a chance to respond, a Brazilian student sitting right behind him muttered, well, it's because you have a German passport. <laughs> so I tell this simply to illustrate that if there's a first tourism agency in Germany, If such thing exists, the advertising rhetorics that I describe here probably won't hook many Germans, right? And this this is informative for how prospective German parents potentially are assessing their children's future life chances and how things like citizenship or citizenships might uh, figure in that assessment. But before I move on, I'll briefly mention a few key words that inform my thinking and my interpretation of this dialectic between the agency's advertising and its resonance with prospective customers who are assumed to be parents. Um, and this dialectic depends on attempting to assess uncertainties in the future, a certain kind of clairvoyance, if you will. Um, and there's a tautology here, right, future is by definition uncertain for all of us, but some people's futures seem more uncertain than others and we see from birth tourism how some people could or could be persuaded to undertake such a reproductive migration strategy because they were reasonably confident of its effectiveness and here anthropologist elizabeth hallam um, who actually i think is affiliated uh, with the school here i don't know her personally but it'd be cool if she's actually here in the room uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, she had argued that this art this tautology is perhaps not really so tautological after all and Howlin had conducted ethnography with fortune tellers, um, self-professed clairvoyance, if you will. Um, and she suggests that clairvoyance, right, the supposed ability to see into the future, rather than, quote, a suspect prediction about what the future might bring, is actually the interpretation of the past and the anticipation of a possible future in the context of the present. Right, so fortune tellers like these, they engage with memories, hopes, and desires, And then weave them into projected futures So I think this practice is not really so different than what I'm describing here on both sides of this dialectic And to make sense of these kind of clairvoyance in a culturally specific manner to the Asia Pacific I have benefited from these wonderful works on different philosophies of parenting in the present Chinese and Taiwanese context These are not intended to be exhaustive, I just want to offer a few major signposts uh, so the first is sociologist Lan Tia's Raising global Families, which you'll actually get to hear about in a couple of weeks as part of the series. Um, so Lan had developed the concept of global security strategies to make sense of parental work in Taiwan and among ethnic Chinese immigrants in the U.S. And she draws heavily on American sociologist Annette LaRoe's um, classic book, Unequal Childhoods, to show how social class produces different parenting skills styles. So middle class parents practice what they call concerted cultivation, while working class parents largely allow children's natural growth. And these practices, Lan argued, when intersect with globalizing ideas about investments in the child exacerbates inequalities among families in different social classes in Taiwan. Similarly, anthropologist Teresa Kwan also drew heavily on Leroux's work to understand the ethics of parenting in contemporary China, Quan, however, draws from Chinese philosophy, argue that Chinese environmentalism—that is, a somewhat anti-humanist understanding of how large environment affects human development outcomes—blurs the distinction between LaRoue's class-based parenting styles, and instead an ethics of trying to arrange for the most suitable environment. What Quan calls the art of disposition dominates Chinese parenting. Quan also emphasizes that Chinese parents are highly conscious of the contradictions they must work with every day while they're parenting. And finally, while it's not really about parenting per se, uh, anthropologist I found anthropologist Julie Chu's ethnography in Fujian, where. Um, there's a particular cultural historical moment where desire for immigration meets potentiality, and that zone for indeterminacy where one must confront the hazards involved in translating these kind of desires into actual projects worth pursuing. Right? So, these would be migrants, to borrow one of Gale's terms, uh, consistently make claims about the past to activate the vectors of one's likely destiny and possible future right? via you know, strategies of migration. So in my overall research on Chinese birth tourism, I'm interested in bringing all of these things together to think about what happens when different philosophies behind parenting strategies in China and Taiwan are now applied to reproduction itself, quite literally. Right? And how some of them get tangled up with migration patterns. So what kinds of past and present contexts help shape these particularly intense future-oriented reproductive strategies like birth tourism and with what sorts of potential vectors might those involvement first-person take? And I think some of these questions are kind of speculative by nature. Um, I know there's demographers in the room, and so you can think about like, now we have this co-growing, um, emerging cohort of children. Um, what about their life course outcomes? You know, these are things that kind of have to be tracked over the years, right? Um, so these are kind of, some of these questions are more speculative at this stage. But I think it's worthwhile to keep them in mind, as much of the stories, I think, that we'll get to see about birth tourism actually have yet to take place. So, uh, in my 2018 chapter, I had compared and contrasted birth tourism agencies in China and Taiwan, respectively, by focusing on three aspects of their operations. I focused on their modes for recruitment, their clientele demographics, and their scales of operations. But in the time, I'll just go over these quickly the students have read this already. Uh, you can find the details elsewhere. Um, so I found that agencies based in China and Guangzhou specifically, they operate on a larger scale and offer diversified products by packaging different kinds of services downstream, that is, in the US, usually. Therefore, they could offer products at a wide range of price points that could appeal to a wide range of clientele. And given the size of their operations, they also strongly focus on virtual advertising and recruitment. And for agencies based in Taiwan, in contrast, they have developed a sort of what I call boutique strategy that focuses less on selling discrete products but on more so on brokering information and making connections to related services. And many of their clienteles are young urban residents with prior international experience so agencies also focus on a more individually tailored approach to attract clients. And I think these services directly relate to how they advertise Burst Tourism, as well as how these their advertising strategies are received. So here, I have identified four themes that Burst Tourism agencies focus on when they craft their marketing strategies. And these four are education, environment and I'll explain in a while why this one is in scare quotes, stability and immigration. And on the left here you see a brochure from an agency based in Guangzhou which listed eight main advantages for traveling to the U.S. for child delivery. Um, apologies i not translating them into English but my main, pers- main, my main purpose here is just to give you an idea of what some of these physical materials look like. And, although my favorite is definitely number three, for those of you who read Chinese, it ends with your child's eligibility to be elected U.S. president. <laughs> 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 um, so my interpretation is that any, uh, all of these agencies generally cover all four of these things in your application. Right? Although their emphases do vary. And depending on the agency's specific location and clientele, some of these things resonate more than others to people who are in attendance at these recruitment meetings. Um, so let us take a closer look at each of these four themes. So first, education. Um, this is the theme that is definitely covered most thoroughly and consistently in these marketing efforts. And it's also the theme that elicits most active engagements from prospective customers in terms of them asking questions or sharing their concerns. And the appeal of education seems almost universal, and I think we can fairly confidently conclude that some form of educational desire, to borrow Andrew Kipnis' term, especially in terms of these children's future studies abroad, <coughs> drives those who look to birth tourism as a reproductive migration strategy. So how do agencies explain this theme in a way that makes the pathway between a child's U.S. citizenship and their future education abroad, away from China and Taiwan, appear natural and predetermined? So here, many agencies focus on U.S. citizenship's ability to facilitate or lubricate the process of studying abroad in the future. So possessing a U.S. passport means that your child has domestic status in the U.S. So there won't be pressures for applying for student visas or complying with various immigration regulations. They might also qualify for in-state tuition rates if they go to a public university. Many agencies highlight that U.S. citizenship makes it easier to send your child abroad sooner and here sooner means before tertiary education Um, so the prospective parents themselves that I encounter they're not so naive to think that a second passport would be sufficient for these kinds of projects over the life course and so agencies often invoke the rhetoric of investment to justify the utility of birth tourism so I heard for example one Chinese agent say well, the price of birth tourism is about the same as staying at an upscale like postpartum care center in Taipei So if you're a mom and you're going to spend that money already Why not spend it in the U.S. and get the side benefit for the same amount of money? I think that this investment rhetoric has three levels So on the top, right, in the best case scenario The money that you spend now on birth tourism is a wise investment that will bring multitudes of higher returns in the future. I think this is why future earnings, for example, are so consistently featured in these ads. So this quote um, taken from an advertising page uh, basically says uh, you know uh, in 20 according to 2018 2008 statistics, Americans on average makes thirty seven thousand um, dollars you know annually. Um, to be honest, this seems quite low, but for the kind of clientele that I see, especially in Taiwan, but you can see how um, this also shows that a particular clientele they're tracking are actually not as rich, at, especially in China, as other documented cases of first person. In an average scenario, even if there aren't exponential returns in terms of future earnings as a result of this educational strategy, at least you'll save some money down the road, which you're likely going to spend anyway. So things like applying for student visas, English language exams, all so in a worst case scenario, even if the U.S. passport never ends up being used for a purpose of study abroad, having a card up your sleeve never hurts, right? So uh, for people who speak Chinese, uh, a lot of agents use this phrase um, to express um, this kind of strategy, right? So since future is uncertain, are you willing to take the risk now for not acting now and regretting it later? And these kinds of investment rhetoric directly appealed to what Teresa Kwan had called the ethics of trying That is key to moral careers of Chinese parents, especially Chinese mothers So unlike what Annette LaRue, the American sociologist had described and had described the middle class American parents They're generally confident in the efficacy of their concerted cultivation Right in contrast what Kwan has argued is that Chinese parents they're more likely to believe that their cultivation of their children will have, at best, very limited effects. And their child's success depends on many uncontrollable and potentially unknowable factors. So, therefore, to be an ethical Chinese parent is not so much to be able to demonstrate your parenting success per se, but is to be able to show that you have tried your best to provide the various conditions, or Tao Tian, in Chinese that give you the child, your child the best chance to, to succeed on their own In a worst case scenario agencies often still press the case that U.S. citizenship remains useful educationally at home right? and So this is in China and Taiwan with things like Access International Schools, etc. But these reasons, what I found, is that um, they, these reasons have more selective appeal and many prospective customers think that, you know, they perceive this kind of type of appeal as just the agencies trying to sort of milk more money out of them by referring them to other kinds of educational intermediaries down the road. Like education, um, another universally featured theme is a whole host of things (coughs) that I kind of collectively call environment. Um, trying to figure out a better way to think about this, so if you have feedback, that would be great. Um, So at the first level, these include things like natural products or properties, ingredients that humans consume during their daily life. And some of these are results of conscious and intentional consumption, like food. Um, Others are unconscious, but necessary ones, like air, for example. In general, there seems to be a widespread belief about how women are most absorptive um, of these environmental factors during pregnancy and the effects will get passed on to the child. So given periodic and public scandals about food safety and pollution, um, agencies often play up these kind of unbeatable combination of natural organic American ingredients with traditional Chinese <laughs> techniques of prenatal and postpartum care. So you would know that this doesn't really have anything to do with U.S. citizenship per se, but it's really about consumptive power, at least I think. Um, So to advertise at this first level, agencies often prominently feature grocery shopping process, the wide availability of organic products, customized meals, or prepared fresh daily. But agencies also post photos of American nature that appears pristine and uncrowded. So they show bright blue skies, dense forests, clean beaches, uh, and something that came up quite often at these information sessions is the issue of air pollution in China And uh, Chai Jing whose banned documentary, Chong Ding Xiao under Dong, got mentioned from time to time So Chai Jing is this well-known um, TV news anchor in China um, She had made this documentary on the, the issue of air pollution in China um, Sort of modeled after the style of Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, if people have seen that and, Ch- and Chai Jing says that she was primarily motivated to make this documentary because after she became a mother, she realized that she had to lock her daughter indoors for most of the time due to the terrible air quality outside. So she made this documentary. And after release, the documentary quickly got banned by the government. And so this documentary came up quite often in information sessions of saying, like, well, look at the Chinese environment so bad. Would you really want to have a baby here? When I first read and heard these kind of rhetoric, They seem kind of illogical to me, right? Because this is kind of an idealized and fictional representation of the U.S. and having U.S. citizenship doesn't, does not necessarily have a strong correlation with positive prenatal development. Um, And also say you came to the U.S. to deliver your child and you had like entirely organic food, breathe the freshest air, drink like only triple filtered water while you're there, for example. But then you bring your child back home to China or to Taiwan to raise, and the US passport doesn't guard that child against things like polluted air particles or second rate cooking oil, tainted baby formula, all these kind of spectacular public scandals that people see on the news. Then what do you do? Right? Are these kind of advertising convincing? So I posed these questions to attendees at these information sessions afterwards, and these are some of the more representative answers that I got. Right. One woman said, well, it's especially important during pregnancy because the core foundation of the child is being formed. So the good food and the calm energy a mother receives during pregnancy will give a child a good foundation, in Chinese. With that good foundation, the child will be able to better withstand all the bad conditions that he or she might encounter in the country, or nay within China. Another said, well, American kids are just stronger, no? Right, so white or black, they're all white and thick um, So that has to be, that has to be the result, that has to be from the overall environment <coughs> So to make sense of these explanations, I think um, environment needs to be conceptualized on a second level, which is why it's in scare quotes So regardless of whether it is misrepresentation or misrecognition of what the U.S. is really like there's an existing geographical imagination about what the U.S. is like, right? It's being associated with a higher quality life that's both biologically and socially and perhaps culturally for some. So what to me sounded like twisted expressions of environmental determinism are actually explanations which draw on the idea of jiao or prenatal education that could translate surrounding environments directly into positive human qualities. And Theresa Kwan had said that the creation of these kind of optimal conditions, optimal environmental conditions, encompasses human geography. And in this case, the United States is being heavily marketed as one such geography, one such overall environment that could intrinsically provide these optimal conditions. Right? So that is not to say that although given all that, that is not to say that all prospective customers accept such logics wholeheartedly. So keeping in mind that human development over a life course depends on a range of factors including sort of more narrower environmental ones um, and that there are indeed observable macro scale differences among different countries I wonder how how long this kind of prenatal protective effect will last and an often a woman told me well this is really not so complicated you know like the rich among us will continue to buy healthy food, give their children treated oxygen and all that when they go back to China, and the rest of us have to hope that if our children are born, are really born in the US, their deeds, their foundation will guard them against the large environment as long as possible. So it seems to me that what was presented as a method to reduce uncertainty in the future would actually continue to create parenting anxieties, and as Lan had suggested, these global security strategies do not ameliorate class differences entirely. Um, I think I'm almost out of time, so I'll try to wrap up quickly. (laughs) Um, So the next two themes are also featured in advertising, although agency recruiters are more likely to qualify or to amend them, depending on the audience. And unlike education and environment, their appeals also seem to be more selective. And the, the first of these two themes are stability, which encompasses appeals about how U.S. citizenship could protect the child from future events, and offer an escape hatch from the home country. In the case of Turkish birth tourism to the U.S., for example, many mothers reference the declining freedom in Turkey as a key motivating factor for securing a U.S. passport for their children. And not directly about birth tourism, but in the Asia-Pacific region, we've also seen what Ai Waong had called passport stories before Hong Kong's return to the PRC and the sort of well-documented emigration patterns uh, to places like Vancouver. Not to mention that historically political uncertainty across the Taiwan Strait was often cited as a reason for immigration from Taiwan so I had, so I had gone in expecting to see a lot of these kind of rhetoric around political uncertainty stability etc but and it was somewhat a surprise that what I found was much more muted right, so there were, while there are occasional references to being afforded protection by the US government and such, um, Any explicit remarks here usually came from freedom provided by economic stability, rather than political. So here the post below suggests how easy it is to be a stable middle class family in the U.S. where life could be well provided for if you just work hard and diligent. Um, The second of these themes is emigration which promotes birth tourism by touting its ability to facilitate emigration to the U.S. for the entire family. So from the American perspective, this is arguably the most controversial part about birth tourism. right? So for example, during the last presidential campaign, you see a lot of American Republican candidates talking about anchor babies, chain migration, all these things, and the argument goes that about birth tourism goes that these anchor babies will result in unwanted chain migrations in the future so I was interested in finding out how much does this really play out on the ground and generally speaking this supposed benefit is universally advertised but it's actually an area where agents most consistently qualify or try to amend it uh, so it's interesting to compare education and emigration for example right? So agencies present all sorts of highly contingent, potentially dubious facts under both of these themes on paper to recruit customers, but in person, they really go all in with the education ones while being much more reserved and caustic about family immigration, right? So I've heard that, for example, that this family immigration strategy can be really difficult and kind of consuming. Recruiters have console perspective on customers that they should focus on getting their children in and worry about the family later. In one of the rare instances, a Taiwanese recruiter has actually factually corrected a claim made in a brochure, which says that U.S. citizens could sponsor green cards for family members after turning 21. Well, she said, you actually have to satisfy a whole host of other requirements too, so it's actually more difficult than what we're presenting. And maybe for a time being. time being, this is looking too far ahead. And this was very unusual. Um, that during my research an agent qualified, or actually self-corrected, what they were presenting to the audience. Um, So, um, yeah. And I think one potential explanation is that agencies are responding to greater attention from American authorities and or they're focusing on opportunities for linkages and referrals to other businesses. So here you see one versus tourism agency advertising um, or refer, refer their customer to things like homestays in the U.S. to um, consultancy meetings about how to accompany your American children to go to school. Um, so we, I think, we already see that this is already a practical reality, uh, where you know they advertise along with their partners, other kinds of educational intermediaries. So now, like, so now these birth tourism agencies are part of. An entire infrastructure with other kinds of intermediaries facilitating movements across the Pacific at different stages of the life course. So to conclude, what do birth tourism agencies operations and marketing strategies tell us about reproduction migrations in Asia Pacific? Well first I think the overall effect of these kinds of intermediaries is that for any kinds of strategies. Whether you want to call it global security strategies, flexible citizenship, kinship, what have you. Increasingly, people have to strategize among different and perhaps competing narratives of value that are being offered by these intermediaries. And I found this especially pronounced in the case of Chinese birth tourism, as more and more of their clientele do not have prior international experience, which means that they have to rely a great deal on the agencies to put their pragmatics of desire into action. So Lan had defined global security strategies as, quote, parents' perceptions of risk and their strategies for mitigating insecurities, end quote. In Chinese birth tourism, this perception is shaped, if not largely by the agencies, then certainly in a dialectical way between the agencies' marketing pitches and the prospective customers' preconceived ideas about what US citizenship and the United States could offer in the future. As Lan argued, these global security strategies exacerbate inequalities, so while parents of all backgrounds are affected by uncertainties and anxieties about the future, those who are wealthy have more at their disposal to engage in concrete actions that could help them manage and mitigate these uncertainties. In birth tourism, we see how these parenting strategies have extended to before the child's life even begins as agencies tout US citizenship as a guarantee for future security and prosperity. Saying that the marketing is effective does not mean that people are duped. So i provided some examples about how prospective customers recognize the limits and inconsistencies to these rhetorics, even as they continue to engage with the corresponding reproductive strategies. So I think one thing is really telling that in one of the most well-read reports, news reports on um, Chinese first tourism, One of the folks was interviewed and he said, well, if you're rich, it doesn't really matter where you're born. As much as first tourism exacerbates existing inequalities within China and Taiwan, I think assessing its implications to inequalities between countries or at an international scale offers a more complicated picture because these first tourism agencies do offer a realistic path that cleaves between these two scales. So let me try to elaborate on this last point. In studies of Turkish First Tourism, which is basically the only earlier research specifically on this phenomenon that I can draw from for for now, the authors have characterized these wealthy Turkish parents as, quote, actors who can forestall localized risks and enable their children to combine local privileges with global opportunities by taking advantage of arbitrary differences between multiple citizenship regimes. But these parents' ability to do so, right, requires a great deal of knowledge and expertise, cultural capital, if you will, on precisely these arbitrary differences between different citizenships. And those, in the case of Chinese first tourism, are exactly what the agencies provide. So unlike the Turkish case, where these parents know the ins and outs already without relying on intermediaries, Many of them have gone to school in the U.S. or Canada, and they're highly educated. Most of the folks I met at these recruitment meetings had to rely on agencies precisely because they did not possess this cultural capital, right? They knew, they had this idea that U.S. citizenship is a good thing, but they don't know the ins and outs, and they don't have our experience to put that into action. So when we think about birth tourism as a way to access U.S. citizenship then in the Chinese case, it does exacerbate some in-country inequalities, but not entirely because, as in the Turkish case, that the people who pursue it are already very, very privileged. There is also the issue where different national citizenships are themselves a source of inequality at an international scale, which is uh, an argument that scholars like Alec Sahar, I don't know how to pronounce her name, sorry, uh, and Jacqueline Stevens, who are political scientists, have made. So if we accept this kind of argument that and that US citizenship is considered a more valuable property than Chinese citizenship or Chinese citizenship, then birth tourism might be one of the easiest ways, if not the easiest way, for someone from the developing world to acquire it. Right? So this is why Yosoli citizenship, first right citizenship, is seen as an inclusive citizenship policy. And implicit within that is the assumption that inclu- inclusivity, uh, inclusion produces inequality. Of course, there are other ways on the macro scale to reduce such inequalities, which do not require women from developing countries traveling en masse to develop countries to give birth. But it's a question. Uh, but for now, I think, in my case at least, uh, for commercialized Chinese birth tourism, it's a question of, in terms of access, do you provide more people routes under the current rules, or do you scrap the rules entirely? In any case, I don't think there's sufficient amount of research yet on birth tourism to say one way or another conclusively. But at the very least, I think if birth tourism exacerbates inequality, it's caused by a differential access to it. And these agencies I've described in today's talk, as problematic as they may be, do end up widening access to birth tourism to a wider range of clientele in the Asia Pacific than what we've seen before. And to further connect my talk today to themes of the entire seminar series, Bell and Mika have raised two building blocks. Oops. Actually, as a previous page. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, actually I will end there. <laughs> uh, so thank you for your attention.